Hey folks, welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to continue our series on the book of signs and the gospel of John. Here, they'll be discussing the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Just a quick reminder before we jump in, you can still get Peter Lightheart's ebook on Pado Communion, the Church, and the Gospel if you sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. This is a weekly newsletter where we send you updates on our work and all things Theopolis. And if you'd like to sign up and get that ebook, you can head to theopolisinstitute.com or there's a link in the description for you. With that, we hope that you are sharpened and encouraged by this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart. I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, and uh, Brian Motes is uh, keeping us on track. Uh, John Crawford is lurking in the background, uh, making uh, significant faces uh, at uh, the, th- the things that he disagrees with or thinks are, are really, uh, really insightful. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John and uh, looking at the so-called Book of Signs that covers the first half of the Gospel of John. And we are coming to the end of that series, uh, looking today at John 9, which by our counting is sign number six. And we, uh, we've been working on the scheme that there are seven signs within the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel that culminate with the raising of Lazarus that prepares for an eighth sign that takes place on the eighth day, the day after the Sabbath, when Jesus rises from the dead at the end of the Gospel. But we've also been trying to correlate the signs with the uh, days of creation. Uh, this one, I think, works really well in a number of ways, as we'll see, but this would be corresponding to the sixth day and the creation of human beings, the creation of Adam, and then the formation of Eve from Adam. And we have here a man blind from birth who's being remade in the course of this miracle and sign. Alistair pointed out at the beginning of the series that we can see a rough correlation between the first three signs and the second three signs. We have a panel structure in the, in the signs of John's Gospel that's similar to the panel structure that we have in Genesis 1, where the first three days of creation week correspond to the second three days of the creation week. And in this case, the, we have the, would have be the third sign and the, and the sixth sign would correspond. And again, we have a pretty strong correlation there. We have in uh, the third sign is the sign of the paralytic who is beside the pool, unable to get into the pool to be healed. And Jesus raises him and tells him to pick up his pallet and carry it. That becomes a cause for a dispute about the Sabbath because the Jewish leaders charge the man with breaking the Sabbath because he's carrying his pallet on the Sabbath and therefore charge Jesus with instructing the man to break the Sabbath. Now we have a similar sequence in John 9. We have a man who has been afflicted for his entire life. We don't know how long that is, but he's a grown man. He is of age, as his parents say at some point in the story. He's a grown man. He's been blind from birth. Jesus heals him, uh, and then he gets uh, caught up in a dispute about the Sabbath. Uh, It's a Sabbath day when Jesus heals, and presumably what they're uh, opposing Maybe they're opposing the fact that Jesus healed at all on the Sabbath. Maybe maybe they become so they've so twisted the their understanding of Sabbath keeping that even 
healing on the Sabbath is considered breaking the Sabbath. Uh, there's a possibility that they're charging Jesus with uh, work because he is working in the earth and forming clay out of the out of the earth. He spits on the earth and forms clay out of it, and that would be a, a, a form of kneading, which would be prohibited on the Sabbath. There's a possibility that that's that's the specific thing they're objecting to, but in any case, that as with the uh, the paralytic in chapter five, this man gets interrogated by the Pharisees. He gets caught up in this dispute. The man in chapter 5, Jesus is around for a lot of the dispute. In this case, Jesus is absent, which is an interesting variation that we'll want to talk about. But the, this is one of the places where that structure works really neatly. And uh, I think that those two events give us a good parallel, two different angles on the, the work that Jesus is bringing. He's raising those who are lame so that they can walk with him in this uh, new exodus from death and sin. He's bringing light and sight to the blind, uh, and he's uh, giving new life to those who've been afflicted from birth. And when we recognize the sign character of what Jesus is doing in these events, we'll understand, uh, among other things, why often the miracles that Jesus performs can have different stages to them. So the stage of smearing um, the mud upon the eyes and then sending him to the um, pool to wash, those two stages are not a sign that Jesus is limited in his healing power, but rather display the fact that this is an event that has a significance that we're supposed to reflect upon um, its meaning in those two stages. Yeah, I think the the formation of clay from the ground is one of the hints that we're in a we're in a creation uh, in the zone of creation. Adam was formed of the dust of the ground, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Here we have Jesus spit on the ground, water and breath coming from Jesus onto the ground, forming a clay that he's going to put on the eyes of the man and then give him sight. And obviously it's not a direct replay of the creation of Adam, but it's a variation on it that um, gives the man new life. He becomes a new man in the sense that he's was once a blind man, and now he's a man who sees. Uh, and he becomes enough of a new man that there's dispute about his identity. As soon as he comes back, he washes off the, uh, the clay from his eyes. And verse 8 says, The neighbors who had previously seen him as a beggar were asking, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? And others say, Yeah, this is him. Others say, Nope, but he's a lot like him. <laughs> so they can't, they can't figure out who this man is. He's, he's been reborn. And it, the, the difference is striking enough so they're, they're confused about his identity. And I, I think the, there's a theological dimension to that, apart from the uh, slightly comical misidentification uh, that goes back to John 3, uh, where Jesus talks about the, the, the one who's born of the Spirit uh, is like the wind. It's not the Spirit is like a wind. That's not the analogy that Jesus gives. It's the one who's born of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where the wind is coming from. You don't know where it's going. And so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Uh, and in John's Gospel, Jesus is the one who is primarily whose origin is, is mysterious, whose destination is mysterious. People are constantly asking, where is he? Where did he come from? Where is he going? That's the question that disciples ask in the upper room discourse. But this blind man is being made into one who's like the Spirit. He's, he's also born in the Spirit. And they don't know where he came from. They don't know if this is the same man or not. He's, he's been remade. Uh, so so those are the combination of things, I think, give us a, put us in the zone of new creation. That's a 
very common patristic way of reading this passage that uh, connect it to the formation of Adam from the ground and see the, the man as a kind of new Adam. The opening of the eyes also is um, connected with Jesus' identity as the light of the world, which is something that's been introduced at the very outset of the first chapter of the gospel. The eyes are the lamp of the body. Um, humanity is also um, to play a role of being light of the world. Um, and so this remaking of the man so that he can see and not just see in a physical sense but there is a certain spiritual vision that's given to him that contrasts with the blindness and the ignorance of the people who question him afterwards where as you say there's a comical character to the way that they're interrogating him they just can't figure out who Christ is where he is um, and also who this man is and he answers them in a very straight manner and direct as do his parents um, but their inability to grasp what's going on is part of the humor of this passage. The light has been turned on for him as his eyes have been um, lit, as it were. And now he's able to see things that others can't. And they're stumbling around in the darkness trying to identify who he is, who Christ is. And yet he can see. Um, and that this description we've already noted, the panel um structure and the way that this parallels with the earlier account where there is a similar sort of process where someone is healed there's a conflict with the jews it's on the sabbath and then there are questions about who christ is trying to identify him and it would seem that this character is a paradigmatic disciple uh, that within this man born blind and healed we're supposed to see ourselves that we're supposed to have light in Christ to be able to see things that we would not otherwise. Yeah. The comedy came home to me years ago when I was living in Idaho and uh, at a service at Christ Church. The, this was the passage, uh, John 9, and they read the entire chapter. And uh, Jim Nance, who was a teacher at uh, Logos School at the time, is kind of an orator and he's, uh, has, uh, he's an, uh, involved in local theater a lot. And uh, he, did, he didn't, he read the passage. It wasn't like he was doing a dramatic reading, but he read the passage extremely well. And the, 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 uh, the comedy of the story and the comedy of some of the, the blind man's responses. So you want to become his disciple too, do you? you? You keep asking the same questions. You must really want to know about Jesus. I can tell you about Jesus. So uh, kudos to Jim Nance for bringing out the comedy of the passage. I, I also want to pick up on the point you made about the man is brought to light. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus says at the end of the chapter, this is why he's come into the world. But there's a double-sidedness, as we talked about last time. The signs both uh, give life and they cause stumbling to those who don't receive Jesus. So he's come into the world so that those who do not see may see, and also so that those who see may become blind. So, and those two things are happening simultaneously. He makes the man see, so he gives sight to the blind. And that very event is what kind of seals the Jews in their blindness because they refuse to receive him. They refuse to, they refuse to see the, the evidence that's right in front of him. And their blindness is confirmed, as it were, by the very fact that Jesus has healed the blind man. The signs all have this double effect. They cause division uh, and conflict between uh, Jesus and the Jews or between the people Jesus heals and the Jews, as in this case. In other parts of the New Testament, we have stories that follow a pattern 
where there is some sort of journey and then particularly in Luke and Acts you have a number of stories where there's a journey and then there's a sacramental event an encounter with Christ you can think about the story of the um, men on the road to Emmaus or the story of the Ethiopian eunuch or the story of Paul um, on the road to Damascus and here I think we could maybe see another um, such story where it's not so much a journey narrative but it follows a pattern that seems to point towards a sacramental significance in the pool that he's sent to wash in mm-hmm. um, in two signs ago we're thinking about the feeding of the 5,000 where there are strong echoes of the Lord's Supper and ways in which we might be drawn to think about that certainly in the discourse that follows at the end of chapter 6 and here I think we're probably supposed to see the same sort of thing, that this washing in the pool is the washing of baptism, or an, at least an anticipation of it. Right, and, and a baptism that's illuminating, that gives, it's a baptism that cleanses, but also gives sight. You mentioned, uh, you used the phrase, a paradig- paradigmatic disciple, and the baptismal imagery would be part of that. The other part that's paradigmatic is the fact that the, the blind man, uh, the blind man's testimony and his insight into who Jesus is grows and matures through the course of the story. It's not that his eyes are opened, he's illuminated by the waters of the pool, and then he immediately knows everything there is to know about Jesus. In fact, he's even after that, he comes back and they say, how did this happen? And he says, the man called Jesus. It's kind of a distancing. There's, it's not Jesus did this to me. He can't, he can't claim Jesus as somebody he knows personally. He's never seen him. Because by the time the man comes back, Jesus is gone. Jesus is withdrawn from the scene. And then as the conflict goes on, the Pharisees challenge him. They say, this man's a sinner. We know this man is a sinner. And the blind man is reasoning through that. Well, if he's a sinner, how can he do these signs? If he's a sinner, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. How can he heal men born blind? We've never heard anything like this. So he must be something else. He identifies him eventually as a prophet. So he's from the from the time of this baptismal experience, he is growing in the midst of conflict with those who oppose Jesus. He becomes not just a kind of paradigmatic disciple, but he kind of becomes a surrogate Jesus because he becomes the object of the Jews' persecution through the course of the story. All the while that's happening, uh, he's getting greater clarity about who Jesus is. I think we see something very similar in the story of Saul, where Saul is struck blind. Or, and then when he's, um, um, when he's visited, he's got scales, as it were, fall from his eyes, and he's immediately baptized. And then he starts to take on the character of Christ mm-hmm. in many respects after his baptism, immediately speaking in the synagogues, people wondering, who is this guy? Um, is this not the person who, etc., just as they asked in the case of Luke, is this not the carpenter's son? And they all marvel at what he's saying. And then eventually they try and kill him and he's let down over the wall. Um, there are a number of ways in which Saul suddenly becomes like Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think we can see part of that paradigm being played mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. in Paul and then also in this particular disciple. Yeah. And I think that the, this um, this scene anticipates the situation of not just of Saul but all the all the disciples in the book of Acts, in the sense that um, they're all thrust into these conflicts where they have to 
manifest the character of Jesus in the absence of Jesus. Jesus has gone away. That's the first chapter of Acts. Jesus goes away as soon as he heals this man. And it's in the absence of Jesus that he has to, has to endure this persecution, has to come to, come to understand who Jesus is. I think in, within John's gospel, the, the story is anticipating what Jesus is going to say in the upper room where he says, I'm going away from you. And when I go for, away from you, all the things that they, they've done to me, they're going to do to you. They're going to persecute you and they're going to speak evil of you and they're going to kill you. They're going to cast you out of the synagogues, which is what happens to the blind man eventually. This is what the thread is that's hanging over the blind man's parents and all the others who would defend Jesus. They're threatened with being expelled and excommunicated from the synagogue if they if they attach themselves to Jesus. So uh, he's in the situation of the disciples in the book of Acts in that sense too, not just in the sense that he's been baptized, been healed, he's growing in his knowledge of Jesus, but also in the sense that he's doing this all in a sense with Jesus away from him. Jeff Myers uh, lectured on this passage many years ago at a Biblical Horizons conference and uh, was this is one of the theological themes that he pointed out that we're frequently left in situations where it seems that we're thrown into the worst crises of our life and God withdraws. It starts early because God creates Adam, places him in the garden, gives, gives him Eve, and then apparently leaves him alone, leaves Eve alone with a serpent, and then comes immediately after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit. Then, then God comes in to evaluate. But where was he? Why didn't he stop it when it was happening? It seems to be always a little late to show up to help. Uh, here, the, the situation, Jesus withdraws, and that gives the man an opportunity to mature and grow and become stronger in his faith, where Jesus is not intervening and, and, and fending off the attack. It, it inhibits the opportunity for the man to grow in his faith. That's a, not just part of the structure of the New Testament. Jesus goes, is absent from his disciples, and they have to face their, they face their enemies without him. But it's also a part of our general experience. Of course, the, the Spirit's work in all that has to be factored in, because Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'll send you the Comforter. So Jesus is not absent in a, in a complete sense, surely not absent in the sense that uh, Jesus is always present with us. But there are certainly times when Jesus seems to withdraw at the very moment that we most need Him. And uh, that's the time when we're to cling to Him when He's invisible. Uh, and when he seems to not not to be hearing, that's when we're called to the, the deepest and strongest faith. There seem to be two questions um, that come throughout the passage at key points. The question of um, who is the ident- what is the identity of a particular person, um, Christ, but then also the blind man. Um, and then the question of blindness itself and um, being, a, uh, being a sinner actually is a very particular question. Mm. Is this man mm. um, blind because of the sin of his parents um, or because of his own sin? And then the question, is Christ a sinner? Is mm-hmm. this man Jesus a sinner? And those two questions seem to be bound up together. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Particularly in verses um, 24 following. Obviously, what the Pharisees or the Jews charge uh, uh, the blind man they, they end up calling the blind man a sinner and uh, use the uh, the fact of his of his blindness um, Jesus has kind of preempted that at the beginning when the d- disciples ask why is this man blind because of his sin or his or his parents sin 
And I think the the uh, it seems to be linked up with the the uh, inversion that we have right at the end of the chapter with the, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, who think themselves uh, wise and think themselves as those who have insight, but Jesus charges them with being blind. Their misjudgment about Jesus calling him in a sinner, their misjudgment about the blind man considering him a sinner, uh, is, a, is a manifestation of their blindness. I would at least link it up with that that thematic. And there it seems to be um, something that's affected through the narrative, that they are made blind yeah. precisely through these precipitating events, that they are um, pushed into a judgment that is very manifestly wrong. Right. So, yeah, and this is a, an, another, we talked about the judgment. Judgment is a theme in John's Gospel, and this is uh, one of many places where judgment is not something that is threatened in the distant future, but now is the judgment of this world. The Pharisees are self-condemned by their reaction to this event and their reaction to Jesus. So the uh, eternal life is given to those who embrace Jesus and receive him. That eternal life begins now. That's not just a, a promise for the future. And judgment begins now. Uh, the judgment is being um, enacted, as you say, in the course of the story, in the course of these events. The passage, uh, I think G.R. Beasley Murray says that the passage is divided up into seven scenes. And I didn't, um, I didn't check to see where those scenes begin and end. But the other seven in the passage is the name of Jesus, which occurs three times right at the beginning of the passage. And then there's another cluster right at the end. And it's interesting that Jesus' name comes back into the story in verse 35, which is also when Jesus himself appears, reappears in the story. As we mentioned, he heals the man and then he leaves. And the last time we hear him mentioned, I think, is in verse 14, the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. But then he's just gone. His name reappears and he reappears immediately after they put him out. Verse 34, that's how they end. That Verse 34 ends with this statement about the excommunication of the blind man. They put him out of the synagogue Jesus <laughs> is the very next word in the text. Striking, not just because it's the very next word in the text, but it's the name that we haven't, we haven't seen through the bulk of the story. And then suddenly Jesus is there and he's speaking to the man and the name of Jesus is used several more times before the chapter is over. And then again, I think is a paradigmatic for the disciples in the first century particularly. They're going to go through all these trials in Jesus' absence and they're going to be cast out. But that's exactly where Jesus is found. Jesus is the one who is crucified outside the gates. Uh, and if you want to find Jesus, that's where you need to go. You need to go outside of the city. He's the one who's been cast out. He's the scapegoat who's been cast out. And that's what's happening to the man here. He finds Jesus immediately after being cast out of the synagogues. It's a reassurance again to the disciples when they're cast out of the synagogues. They're not being uh, left alone, but that's exactly where Jesus is found. I think it's reassurance for, you know, we, we can see this as a, as a kind of a parable of discipleship for the many, many faithful believers who are in ungodly churches uh, who are cast out. And they, you know, spent years maybe fighting, testifying to Jesus. They're the only ones who can see within their church. They're surrounded by blind people and Pharisees. And then they're finally cast out. But that's where, right where Jesus is, and that's where they can find uh, that's where they can, uh, Jesus will be present with them. 
So that, again, is an, an anticipation of what Jesus is going to tell the disciples later. And again, an anticipation and reassurance for the experience of Christians today. And once again, the account of the sign, whereas we might think it ends in verse 7, that's the sign, the yeah. actual event of healing. Right. So much of the passage is devoted to what happens next. How do people respond? What are the significant conversations that this provokes? And as with almost all the other signs in John's gospel, that is where the attention is particularly focused. It's how people respond to this, who sees, who doesn't. And once again, Jesus is not present when the actual event takes place, when the opening of the man's yeah. eyes. He instructs him and then he obeys the word. And as he obeys the word, um, Christ's power is made known. But again, there is a sense of um, presence and absence of revelation and and um, veiling within the whole story that is paralleled with own Christ's own ministry where you can't tell where things are coming from. He's the man of the spirit. He's the one who's going to go away um, just after his great revelation of his power in the resurrection. And the conversations that occur and the questions of whether you believe, whether you see, um, those are the questions that linger after every one of these signs. Not so much some dramatic display, but a divided response. Yeah, and even even at the beginning, when you, when you have the first sign, I'd have to think through all the rest of the events, but you, you frequently have that phenomenon that the sign is actually taking place kind of in the midst of other actions. It's not like Jesus speaks and then there's something, you know, the man with the withered arm, Jesus says, be healed and he's healed and everybody can see that happen. The, the immediate connection, the immediate connection between Jesus' word and the effect, the uh, water to wine, somewhere in the time between drawing the water out of the uh, stone jars to the time that it's served, it's become wine. But when that happens and the cause, cause and effect is lost, Jesus kind of detached from the event itself. And that means that the sign is not just the miracle. I think that's we started the series, I'm thinking more, the, the sign is the miracle, and then you have these other episodes, these debates that come after. But I think you're right that the sign, we need to expen, extend the what we mean by the sign. The sign is the whole episode that includes the miracle, but also includes all the effects of the miracle, uh, which are both testifying to Jesus and also uh, have this divisive effect on, on the people who witness it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.